I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello. It's summertime. It feels wonderful. It's Tuesday, June 4th, 2019. And we here at the Wong Takes, or I here at the Wong Takes, I'm very excited to be one of the first to welcome you into summer. So now our, well, I guess our, our third summer here at the Wong Takes. We started uh, in, I think, July 2017, before my junior year. And we went, we did five or six episodes in that summer. And then we went to the next summer, did all that. And now we are into summer number three. There, the world of sports has calmed down a little bit. Mostly, well, at least breadth-wise, depth-wise, we still got uh, some finals going on. And I haven't really thought too far ahead about uh, what this podcast is going to be like over the next couple of months and, and moving forward after that. But uh, I suppose we'll see, and I hope everyone here can stay on the journey with me. Hopefully we can do something special for um, episode number 100, which is coming up mighty soon. It's actually kind of scary how, uh, how close it is, but nevertheless, we will continue on uh, past that, and hopefully to... Uh, to many, many more. And so let's go. So, so far, I have been spot on with my uh, NBA Finals picks. I am two for two so far. I picked the Warriors to lose the first game and win the second game, and that's exactly what happened. That doesn't make it any less noteworthy. Uh, the first game I wasn't actually able to watch because I was graduating. But uh, the Raptors outplayed the Warriors, uh, got ahead early, and then except normally when the Warriors make that final push and uh, take the lead, they weren't able to do so and, and took that first loss, 118-109. to But the second game was very, very noteworthy. Golden State in Toronto looking to not go down to love. And they did just that, taking game two in Toronto, 109-104. to 104. Now, this was the type of game we've gotten accustomed to seeing the Warriors play. They start out a little lackadaisical. Get, on a big, get down early, go on a big run, and win the game. But this was the NBA Finals. This was no Portland Trailblazers, no disrespect to them, but these are the Toronto Raptors that defeated them in Game 1. And for the Warriors to go on a 20 nothing run, the largest ever of those kinds of runs in Finals history. That just flipped the game around. Obviously. But the momentum that the Warriors know they can bring to the table, and particularly bring out a halftime, it's one thing to see that and say, you know, we're not going to let that happen. But once the Warriors start getting on a run... It feels like a landslide. It feels like there's nothing to do that to do that you can do to stop it. It feels like 
there's the lid on the basket. I mean, the Raptors not hitting a shot in the first six minutes. I mean, that's inexcusable against Golden State. And I'm going to talk about what happened in Jeopardy a little later. But it's, it's like that. I mean, you have to play pretty much a perfect game uh, to beat the Warriors, particularly uh, when they're on. And what's scary is that this isn't even with Kevin Durant. I mean, Kevin Durant has been out since the start of the Western Conference Finals, or since Game 6. And for him to continue to be out, and for the Warriors to still be able to come away with wins, uh, is something that should scare the rest of the league. And has scared the rest of the league, and will scare the Raptors now. And there's a lot of uh, talk of the last few years about the Warriors... Uh, ruining the game. And I came across something interesting. I saw it live and then I, I looked up afterwards and I saw that the Raptors for the last like five or so minutes of the game when they almost came made a comeback and scored 10 points in a row, they were running a different defense than pretty much ever, any other group in the NBA has done. They ran a box and one, which is having four players basically in a box around the paint, forming a little zone, and then you have one player chasing, one player playing man, basically, and chasing a star player. Now, what that defense allows you to do is it allows you to lock up that star player, in this case, Stephen Curry. Um, and because you have one guy chasing around, chasing him around, and if he tries to penetrate, if Steph tries to penetrate, you have the guys playing your zone, right, to come and bunch. Now, the thing with that is... Uh, it, it leaves other players open. So, like, let's say Steph drives. All four guys are around the paint. At least two of them are going to converge. And what does that do? That leaves players open on the perimeter. And so the Raptors tried to employ this defense as kind of a desperation measure. Um, and it's not often used outside of high school, basically. Because when you have players that can actually shoot on the wings, right, you don't want to be giving them open looks. And that's what happened on the last possession or the last major offensive possession of the game for the Warriors with Andre Iguodala uh, hitting that three. Uh, that happened because you have the one player on Steph, the box converges with Sean Livingston, he jumps, dumps it off to the side to Iguodala, and he's got like 10 seconds to shoot a three. Um, but that just goes to demonstrate how much the Raptors are trying to limit Steph Curry. And I think they're not going to be able to do that in the future because when you have Clay or, or KD there, uh, it, it's that defense will come back to bite you because those players actually make shots consistently. And it could have even come back to bite them if the Warriors were hitting more consistently. Uh, they just weren't. But I, I think even with that, the Warriors have not changed what they're going to do very much. Uh, I mean, that, that, that defense is probably not going to come out again. Um, although it, it may if it's a late game situation and you got some guys in foul trouble. Um, but the Warriors, they're confident as ever. And I know that that annoys a lot of people because it comes off as cockiness, which it totally is, right? Going out there and saying, every time you lose, saying, we like to lose. We, uh, we are excited uh, for the opportunity or the challenge. That's cockiness. But the Warriors have the right to have that because of what they've been able to do over the last four or five years. Um, and their experience comes into play because they've been down 3-1 in series before. They've also been up 3-1, but that's beside the point. 
They know they've been down three one against a really good team against Kevin Durant three years ago. They've been down two one uh, in finals before. They they understand how to face adversity, and I don't think that's going to change anything. And now that they've got home court advantage, they're smooth sailing. One big takeaway, or another big takeaway from this game, was Demarcus Cousins um, playing a major role in Game Two. He went down in that first round series, and we thought, you know, he's he's not coming back. It's really disappointing that this was like this is what he signed up for. Uh, he wanted to come here and get a ring and and play in high pressure situations, and it didn't look like he was going to get to do that. And in Game One, he played, but he only played eight minutes. Now. To play 27 minutes, have 11 points, 10 uh, rebounds, and 6 assists uh, with plus with a plus 12 rating is remarkable. Nothing short of remarkable. And I think having DeMarcus Cousins in there, particularly with the Kevon Looney injury, which I'm going to talk about injuries in a little bit, is going to play a huge role um, because you've got Boogie, and you've got Andrew Bogut. Those are your two big men. Um, and Bogut only played seven minutes in game two. Um, and he's pretty much, all he's been doing is just catching lobs. Um, which there's nothing wrong with that. And playing well in the defensive end. Um, but the fact that those are your only two big men means that you're going to need to get a lot of minutes out of both of them. And I, I can totally see DeMarcus Cousins playing 30 minutes uh, in game three. Because they may, may very well need that out of him. And I... I mean, I, the Warriors, I, they don't want to do that. They don't want to have to push him, but it's the finals, and you got to do what you got to do to win. Um, and I think playing DeMarcus a lot of those minutes is one of the keys to winning. Now, of course, the reason they need to play him so much is because of injuries. Uh, first of all, Kevin Durant uh, via Shams is out of Game 3. This was uh, released about an hour ago, or two hours ago, three hours ago. Uh, Durant will not be playing, and so that that's one injury. Uh, Warriors PR says, and I'll just read this quote, uh, Warriors guard Clay Thompson, who exited Game 2 of the NBA Finals, blah, blah, uh, due to left hamstring tightness, underwent an MRI exam, which indicated um, a mild strain, and so it was questionable for Game 3. And Kevon Looney, who did not play in the second half of Game 2 due to an upper body injury, uh, underwent an MRI exam, which indicated that Looney has suffered a non-displaced first costal cartilage fracture. Uh, he will be out indefinitely. So, Clay Thompson, questionable for Game 3. Uh, Looney out for the rest of the series. I think Looney is a not insignificant uh, pain. Looney's really uh, started to play well over the last few games uh, as a kind of uh, imposing presence inside. He's playing, been playing pretty good defense. Um, and I think not having that force is going to be difficult for Golden State because they're going to have to stretch out their other bigs. Uh, and Toronto's not a team that you want to go all small against. Clay Thompson, of course, is a massive one. A massive report, at least. Game 2, he had 25 points, uh, including 4 for 6 from 3. And that supplemental scoring is going to be very well needed uh, against Toronto because just like the Raptors couldn't afford to go six scoreless minutes uh, against Golden State, to a lesser extent, but still so, Golden State cannot afford to 
have six scoreless minutes against Toronto. And so I think having Clay Thompson there provides that extra outlet. And uh, without that, they will be in deep doo-doo. It's interesting how the Warriors have had all of these injuries this postseason, and yet they're still here. I think that speaks to the resiliency of the team, and it's one of those legacy builders. It's one of those things where if they end up going on to win these finals, that will definitely count into their legacy. I mean, early on, a lot uh, of injuries were on the other side. I mean, uh, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love getting hurt in that first uh, NBA Finals was a, a, a talking point uh, for a long time. But I think all the haters are going to have to shut up if the Warriors go on to win this championship because of all the injuries that they've suffered with Boogie and Durant uh, and now Clay and Kevon. We now look forward to Game 3 of the NBA Finals in Oakland tomorrow. Uh, or whenever this comes out. It's on Wednesday. It's on Wednesday. It's on Wednesday night. And I think the biggest keys are, well, one, going to be injuries. I mean, are Clay, or is Clay healthy? Because if Clay is not healthy, the Warriors regain that chip on their shoulder, and I don't think they win both games at Oakland if Clay Thompson is unable to play in both. Uh, just purely because the, this Raptors team is a lot, is actually more evenly matched than I thought. And I, I, I don't think that there's a significant talent gap there. Or if there is, it's not emerging yet in the series. Uh, I think the other big key uh, for, at least for Toronto, is getting that other scoring production, particularly from Fred Van Vliet, because he kind of emerged as like a, a unsung star in that Buck series. But now that he has become a, a, a kind of star, and he's getting those minutes. I mean, he's played 35 minutes a game so far. Scoring 16 points uh, per game on a combined from the first two games, 3 for 12 shooting from 3, isn't going to cut it uh, from, from the Raptors' perspective, what the things that they're, what they're granting him uh, minutes-wise. They're going to need more out of him. They're going to need him to hit more timely shots, particularly down the stretch. Uh, if they're going to want to win this series. I think those are, are the big keys because they, the key to any team beating the Warriors is the Warriors don't shoot well and you shoot very well, right? Uh, it sounds obvious, but basically every matchup the Warriors have played has come down to that. Do the Warriors shoot well? Because if the Warriors shoot well, you're done, and if you don't shoot well, you're not. you're done. The Warriors are going to take that game easy. Um, and so Fred Van Vliet um, is going to be a big key. Danny Green, I think, is going to be a big key as well. He's kind of disappeared a little bit in Toronto. Uh, even though he's getting pretty decent minutes, uh, he's not getting as many opportunities to hit shots uh, as he was down in San Antonio. And I think spreading the ball around to him, I think, would be a good move for Nick Nurse uh, and the Toronto Raptors. Now, something we haven't seen in a while and what I'm curious to see what happens if the Raptors are able to execute this is, is a team able to throw a late haymaker against the Warriors? I'm not talking about early in the game, say the Raptors go on a you know little 15-2 run or something and, and put the Warriors down double digits in like the second quarter and the crowd is 
dead silent and all that. I'm not talking about those type of haymakers. The Warriors have faced those haymakers in basically every game since the Houston series. Uh, I mean, they've been down double digits every single game and come back in all but one of them. But I'm curious to see what happens if a team is able to make one of those deep runs toward the end of the game. Because we start to see, we started to see a hint of that. Um, Portland went on a 10-0 run in the last five minutes of the game before Andre Iguodala hit the dagger three. And we did start to see the Warriors lose their composure a little bit. With, with people in foul trouble and Steph really being the only consistent major playmaker on the floor, the only playmaker that was playing well at that point, we started to get a sense of the Warriors' panic mode. And it's not pretty basketball. Because if they're not hitting shots and their role players, more importantly, are rushing their shots, uh, this is a team that can go cold. And if the Raptors are able to make this close, I think they have a legitimate shot at winning in Oracle. Because... I've seen the Warriors play in late-game situations. At times, they don't execute well in the clutch. Um, part of it is because they're not as acclimated to those situations, uh, especially over the last couple of years with, with Kevin Durant. And even though they've played really well uh, in these playoffs, particularly in the last couple of rounds, I think if the Raptors can keep this game close, reserve a lot of their... I mean, it's luck, basically, but if they can throw a haymaker late, uh, I think they've got a legitimate chance to win a game at Oracle and possibly steal back home court. Now, if this game goes, if this series goes 2-2 back to Toronto, I, I put it at a 50-50 uh, coin flip as far as who wins the series, just because these teams are both really talented, and even though the Warriors are probably the better team, uh, uh, I'm biased, but uh, I would say that the Warriors are the better team. But that doesn't mean that the Raptors might have a little bit left in them. I mean, they've demonstrated the formula to beating Golden State, and it's just lim it's, it's what everyone uh, has tried to do to limit Golden State, which is to limit those runs and play consistent offensive basketball. And if you can do that, you have a decent chance of beating the Warriors. Uh, I think this Warriors team, on the whole, is a little bit less, I guess, mystical would be the right word. Uh, than in previous years. I mean, there is a formula to beating them, I, I just said, uh, like I just said. And I think the fact that there is one has done, has made it more important for the Warriors star players to step up than ever before. And I think that's where Steph Curry comes in. Because they know the game plan against them. And if they know that if they execute, they're unstoppable. But if they don't execute, they're as vulnerable uh, as they ever have been in this five-year run, particularly with the injuries and with Klay Thompson being questionable for Game 3, it's especially iffy. Uh, and so I think the Warriors have a decent shot at, at well, my prediction at least, is that they're going to win both of these games at home and go back to Toronto 3-1. Uh, I'm, I'm rolling with my original prediction I made before this series started of Warriors and 6, loss, win, 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 loss, win. But nevertheless, anything could happen, and I'm excited to watch uh, Game 4, and not only that, but just the rest of this series. Alright, so we are only, what, a little less than 20 minutes into the show, but we're going to swing into Quick Take already, because I've got a, a pretty fun off-topic to talk about. Um, but anyway, let's do the Quick Take.
this is via someone on Bleacher Report, but also via Twitter and basically every other news source. Uh, Vince Carter is going to retire after this year, and what a career it's been. Uh, I grew up, when I started to become a basketball fan in around, you know, 2008-2009, one of the things that has been etched into my memory, uh, in part because it's been played so many times, but also because uh, it was just before my era, was the 2000 dunk contest. Because that was where I got to know Vince Carter, uh, and where I got to know all of the famous, it's over, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and just seeing this man, and also, well, I'll get to that later, but I, I really got him to, got to know him as a legend just from that before I ever saw him play. And nothing that I've seen has lessened that opinion of him. Uh, just because at 41, he's done so much, or 42, or however old he is, has done so much, and he can still dunk, and he can still play at a high an NBA level. I mean, there are only 450 people that get to play at an NBA level, and he's one of them. And what he's done for so many places, and he seems to be nothing but a great guy, uh, a great older influence on the younger players. And I think for him, there's really nothing else left to do. Oh yeah, and one other thing, the dunk of death in the Olympics uh, over Frederick Weiss. I recommend you look that up because it is one of the most disrespectful things I've ever seen. Uh, Vince Carter on a fast break playing for Team USA against France gets the ball and jumps over the seven-foot center who's on an Olympic team, dunks it home, and then almost punches Garnett in the face out of excitement. It is one of the greatest things I think I've ever seen with my own two eyes, and I would encourage anyone with a pair of them uh, to go watch that. Vince Carter dunk over Frederick Weiss in the, Olymp Weiss in the Olympics. Anyway, and I think Vince Carter just seems like an affable enemy. He's got a job in the media, uh, that's for sure. He's one of those players that hasn't always gotten along the best uh, with other people, but I think his appearances on... You know, ESPN and other shows uh, have demonstrated that he's got a good personality and the media will definitely will be in contact with him, I think, uh, over the long term. Just because he's got plenty of experience um, and he can speak as far as both young phenoms and older vets and the role that those uh, style of players play in an NBA locker room. Um, and and that's what I think uh, about Vince Carter. Off topic today, we'll be getting into the end of Jeopardy! James. James Holzhauer, the phenom sports gambler who took Jeopardy! by storm over the last five or six weeks. In 32 games, Jeopardy! James won $2,464,216, just 58 grand short of Ken Jennings' all-time winnings record. And he's shown to be nothing uh, but a class act. One thing that I liked in particular was when his uh, run ended over these last few days. He made an effort to give an exclusive interview to Scott Van Pelt, 
um, which is one of his favorite news anchors and one of my or sports anchors and one of my favorite sports anchors. Um, and watching them get along uh, was great to see. But I saw this comment uh, somewhere, and what I think James's run has done. Well, first of all, it's changed how Jeopardy is going to be played forever because his run ended in March in like real time. But people watching it now, when they go on in three months, and we're already starting to see that with uh, Emma Emma Betcher, uh, the new champion. But people are going to start playing like that forever now. I mean, the fact that a run like Jeopardy James, James Holzhauer, has happened now in the social media age, especially compared to Ken Jennings, whose run happened in 2004, but Jeopardy James's run, Holzhauer's run, has happened in an age where everyone... It's like the old days when people would just sit around and watch TV together. I mean, it's literally appointment viewing. Um, and, and people would get together at 7 o'clock or whenever your show came on and watch it uh, for across many generations. And I think that's something that is not going to be replicated soon. And I think his in influence is going to be had all across Jeopardy and all types of Jeopardy as well. But I think another thing that Holzhauer has done is kind of nor continued what is this normalization of gambling culture and, well, betting in general, and sports betting in particular. Because when you conjure up images of gamblers or people who gamble as a livelihood, I mean, you get images of uh, people who waste their life savings on gambling, who are addicted, who aren't smart. Uh, who just do this because uh, it's an adrenaline rush and they have no concern for the long-term consequences. But James is the exact opposite of that. I mean, he's got a wife and a daughter, and he's a family man. We saw that in his Jeopardy run. He cares deeply about his family. Uh, he's a professional gambler, but he's not disheveled uh, or broke. I mean, he's going to be anything but broke after this appearance on Jeopardy. Um, and he's just been wholesome throughout. And I think... Part of that, what that's going to do is subconsciously, when people hear a professional sports better, you know, the first image that's going to come to mind is not an irresponsible drunkard or an irresponsible gambler, but James Holzhauer. And I think that'll do a lot to kind of remove some of the stigma that comes along with people saying, I gamble for a living, uh, or... I, you know, do bets on the side. That's not going to be such a bad thing or something for people to be ashamed of anymore. Um, and obviously, gambling must be done responsibly. I mean, for every Jeopardy James, there's a person who took their, like I said, life savings and betted on, on some stupid sports thing. But it just goes to demonstrate that not everyone is like that, right? And... It's always good when you can see another side of the story, and I think that's what, uh, culturally, something that his run has kind of brought to the limelight. We're not going to see another run like James again for a while, unless Emma goes on doing her thing. Um, but it's I'm going to probably continue watching. Uh, it's kind of rekindled my love of Jeopardy. And hopefully one of these days you guys will see me on uh, Jeopardy in, you know, 10 years or so. Maybe I might go to the library and I grab a trivia book after I finish recording this. Thanks so much for listening to The Long Takes. Check it out everywhere. bit.ly slash The Long Takes. Patreon.com slash The Long Takes. 
at gmail.com, rate the podcast on iTunes and Google Play, and hit that juicy subscribe button, send questions, leave voicemails. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And, yeah, I'll see you next week.